This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Form Coaches course. I am here with Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Um, sometimes we have Mike, sometimes we have Brad. Our special guest today, I'm really super excited about because we've introduced uh, this product to our coaches course. And basically, we know whether or not our clients are recovered or not recovered enough to work out which I think is a really important part. So we're gonna talk with Dr. Simon Wegeriff about recovery, how to use heart rate variability to recover, um, and then what the readings mean and how you can, can use them. Because it's, um, for a long while, it seemed like HRV, the only way that, that you could get in was at a pretty high, price point uh, the I use the the finger adapter and I believe in the US it's only 69.95 so I mean that's a pretty reasonable rate and when you look at how many people are working out intensely whether it be powerlifting whether it be Olympic lifting whether it be CrossFit um, knowing that information is fairly important so Simon why don't you give a little introduction of your you know, academic background, how you came to own iFleet, and then basically kind of a basic introduction to HRV. Sure. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for the introduction. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I've known Mike for a few years now. In fact, uh, Mike Nelson was one of the uh, original supporters of, of helping to keep uh, going and getting some momentum. So uh, always good to be with Mike again. Um, yeah, my background is basically in engineering and signal processing. I was at the uh, uh, the BBC, the Broadcaster Research Department. I worked quite a bit on the early days of digital broadcasting. Uh, I've spent uh, seven years working in Silicon Valley, um, doing a number of startup activities, uh, including some biomedical applications. And I became fascinated with heart rate variability, partly as a tool to get more out of myself. I'm a a keen but not very talented recreational endurance athlete and um, I read an article back in I think early 2008 about uh, HRV, how it could uh, be um, uh, measured and used as potentially a very powerful tool of gauging of fatigue and recovery levels. So I mean can, can you hold on one second Mike would you mind muting your mic for just a second I'm, I'm getting a little bit of an echo off of Simon and I just want to see if yeah. I can if I can fix it somehow. Yeah, let's see here. If I, I just click the little mic thing, that little yep. drop it, right? Yep, yep. Okay, so Simon, why don't you go in? Let's see if that worked. Okay. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much, Paul. Um, well, you were, you were talking about the BBC. It wasn't that bad, um, but you were talking about the BBC and, you know, your yeah. work there. So, you know, for many years, I've also been uh, a very enthusiastic, but not particularly talented endurance athlete doing, uh, I used to do triathlons, uh, I did rowing back at school, and nowadays I do quite a lot of long distance cycling and competitive events in, in that arena. And um, I read an article in 2008 that um, showed the potential of heart rate variability to actors as a really good barometer of overall fatigue and recovery. But at that time, there wasn't any easy way to do it. There's some, some relatively expensive equipment. HRV had already, you know, had been proven in a medical and a space, um, a space program background, in fact. Um, but it, it really wasn't available to consumers. So um, with my background in electronics and signal processing and my, uh, my motivation to create a tool that I could use and that hopefully a lot of other people could make uh, use of as well. I said about creating the iFleet as an application. And when we launched it uh, at the end of 2009, it was the first heart rate monitor of any kind, in fact, that was available on the, uh, on the iPhone, let alone heart rate variability. So it was fairly advanced at the time. Uh, we had a very good uh, beta feedback group. Um, and we had some basic principles for the first version of the app that we stick to today. One is simplicity and convenience. Um, uh, I spent many years working in consumer electronics, and if something is going to get used regularly, 
then it has to be simple and convenient to use. But at the same time, I, in no way did I want to uh, compromise scientific integrity. So uh, we took a, a reasonably bold step at the time of using a one-minute paced breathing measurement, um, which some people were quite sceptical about. It was later it was later completely validated. So uh, one minute is actually fine for doing a daily HRV reading. Uh, another couple of principles we wanted to deploy was to have a number scale which people could really understand. So uh, heart rate variability traditionally has a wide variety of units and some very scientific sounding measures. So I also set out to create a scale um, that um, would immediately give people some feedback on where they were heading and would have some nice mathematical properties as well. So the scale that we created is based on what's now a very popular measure called uh, RMSSD. Um, and we take a natural log of that and we scale it. And some of the most aerobically fit people will be at or even a little bit above 100. And people with real health issues um, can be below 50. So people immediately get some psychological feedback on how they're doing. And we, we found this very clearly uh, when we demonstrated it. Um, uh, we did over 200 demos at CES last year. And everybody had some sort of reaction to the number that they got in the test. So the third thing that we wanted was, was color coding. So to give people some simple feedback and guidance every morning as to you know, how recovered they are and how ready they are to train hard on that day. And those color codes are you know, the traffic lights really that you would expect, green to be good to go today, amber for a certain amount of caution. It looks like you're not fully recovered. Um, so you need to you know, you might need to take that into account in determining what kind of workout you're doing and what other recovery modalities and nutrition you're going to adopt for the day. And reds, I always intended uh, reds to be given out fairly sparingly by the app, but also taken seriously. I think I've ignored reds in the past six years on about three or four occasions and regretted it every single time. So, you know, reds are to be taken seriously. And we, we color code the trends as well as the daily measure. And uh, some of the research would argue that the weekly trend is the, the, the rolling average, the seven-day trend, is, is, is really a key one when you're looking at cumulative fatigue, um, especially during a periodized program. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, and Mike, you're muted, that did fix the problem. Um, and so whenever you have a question, just kind of like give me a little nod and I'll uh, bring you into the, into the conversation. One of the things that we try to do, Simon, is um, to talk about the science and give the background of how all this stuff works because, you know, the main audience is our coaches, but we also want to make a case for regular folks, right? And so if I was a gym owner, okay, can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, I'll give you an example right now, as, as you guys can probably hear. I'm sick. And so um, what often gets asked to gym owners or people at Eat Perform is should I work out when I'm sick, right? And an HRV will tell you whether or not you should work out with when you're sick. So can you explain like just like the 101 version, elevator version of why that happens? And what heart rate variability means because I have to say when people ask me, I'm like, okay, it's sort of like an EKG. So why don't you run through the, the, the elevator version? Sure. Well, heart rate variability is, um, is in some ways a counterintuitive concept. Um, thanks to, um, uh, you know, wrist, uh, wrist-worn monitors, um, heart rate monitors, we expect our heart rate at rest to beat in a very steady, almost metronomic fashion. That's, that's actually artificial. That's an artifice of the way that it's measured and presented. What actually happens is that the two um, arms of your autonomic nervous system are constantly interacting and producing variation in your heart rate. And that variation in the heart rate is actually very healthy uh, in the vast majority of cases. 
So the two branches of the autonomic nervous system, pretty much everybody's familiar with the sympathetic, the fight or flight response. That's the one that's associated with the adrenaline family of hormones. It increases the heart rate and it reduces the heart rate variability. On the other hand, the parasympathetic branch, where parasympathetic means alongside the sympathetic, there's a parallel set of wiring, and that wiring in your body is associated with rest, digestion, and recovery. And what actually happens when, um, uh, when you're at rest is that the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system is or should be dominant. And that dominance means that you get quite a lot of healthy variation, particularly as you breathe in and as you breathe out. So what you do is you measure that amount of variation and then you compare it to the user's own baseline. And it's the relative changes to that baseline which are the most important thing to, to characterize and give you immediate feedback every day as to, you know, how you're doing fatigue and recovery wise. And if somebody is sick, uh, you know, I've got some extreme examples of sickness <laughs> amongst some of my cycling friends who would normally get in the 80s and 90s on on, um, uh, on their daily readings on athlete. Um, but one of them uh, got a morning reading of 35. Um, and he knew immediately that something was distinctly not right. And by the middle of that afternoon, he was in the emergency room with swine flu. And I had a similar situation with another person. So a very precipitous drop like that can really herald, you know, an alarm state of the body that, uh, um, you know, it's going to have a hard time fighting. So the amount of the drop is quite important, right? So after you've been using iFleet for a few weeks, you get used to what kind of range that your HRV daily readings have. So you know when something's really heading in the wrong direction. And of course, the iFleet color codes are also there to help you. Um, one really interesting branch of research that's, that's uh, being developed further in the past few years um, is the uh, gating of the inflammatory response. So the inflammatory response in the body is strongly associated with the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system in a causal manner, not a, not a sort of, you know, not a, a correlation relationship. The parasympathetic branch actually gates the, uh, the inflammatory response and cytokines and other stuff like that that Mike can talk a lot more knowledgeably about than, than, than I can. So one of my roles in this conversation, the great thing about having a podcast and, and kind of a, a video uh, ability to do this stuff is that we can explore broader topics rather than, you know, here's your 40, uh, well, what's the Twitter? It's 140 syllables to get your message out. We get to have a, a broader message. But I'm the only non-PhD on this call, right? And so uh, I think sometimes my role is sort of the nerd interpreter. And so if you were to explain to someone in two sentences what heart rate variability is, how would you do that? Your heart rate variability is the natural and healthy variation in your heart rate, in your heart rate, the beat to beat timing of your heart rate um, as, as your body tries to achieve the optimum efficiency in any particular state. So that could be resting or any other state. So it's the constant interplay of the body's systems doing a job that's been finely honed by millions of years of evolution to do a really good job of running your body efficiently. So how would that relate to say something like an EKG? Okay, so if you, many people are familiar with an EKG um, waveform, so you've got these sharp spikes on it. The sharp spikes are the depolarization of the ventricle. So that's when the, the, the big part of the heartbeat starts. And if you measure, those are nice sharp spikes, which means that, that they're quite easy to, to measure. So you can look at the gap in um, uh, between adjacent beats. And if you measure that precisely and look at one heartbeat versus the next heartbeat versus the next heartbeat and so on, you will see a variation, which is really quite significant. So these these... Original heart rate variability measurements were done, you know, with with um, pen and ink ECG um, uh, cardiographs many many years ago, and they could see quite clearly the variation in beat to beat timing even on those. But nowadays we measure it. So in ICE, we measure it to an accuracy of one millisecond, which is one one thousandth of a typical heart 
beat period. So we do we characterize it pretty accurately. See the so so is it similar to an EKG? But it's basically just measuring the 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 variability in between because usually what you see is like uh, okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, Mike unmute yourself and then you can talk to. Oh, I was just trying to draw a horrible looking picture here so that it's measuring from the top of the spiky one he was talking about the R wave to the next R wave. So okay, that's so how you determine the exact distance. That's the point I was trying to get to, and I think that's the point that, that users are going to find the most beneficial. When you look at an EKG and you see the bouncing, right? Mike, you're going to need to mute yourself again. Um, but when you see the bouncing, basically there's variability within the lines that you normally would see, right? And so um, it's that variability that that basically describes whether or not you're recovered or not to do exercise. Is that correct, Simon? That's absolutely correct. And, and this was understood by Chinese philosophers um, many, many hundreds of years ago. They they even uh, had a saying that if the if the beat of the patient's heart is as constant as uh, the rain on the roof or the pecking of the woodpecker, then the patient will be dead within three days. So, you know, a constant heartbeat has always, you know, has been associated with ill health for quite some time. So the amount of variation uh, is, is generally very good. We're not talking about uh, variation caused by any pathological arrhythmias here. Right. So we're talking about a natural and healthy uh, variation that's referred to as respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Okay, so, so this is a great point because what, what smartphones has allowed us to do, this is actually, we're coming into the time where smartphones are actually living up to their potential because we were told many years ago, hey, these phones are going to be able to give you medical data right in the palm of your hand. That is what heart rate variability is doing and what it's doing. Like in my instance, you know, normally I'm high 80s, 92. Okay. Um, I had a bit of an allergic reaction to um, some, some stuff that I was doing in my house. And then ultimately it looks like I've been sick. So when you look at my heart rate variability of 92, and then you look at the time where I had the allergic reaction, I went to 71. And then this morning I was 76. So that's fairly dramatic. And like Simon is saying, you know, if you've got swine flu, it's even more dramatic. And so if, if, if you're wanting to, because what we always hear, how reliable are these devices, right? And so you've got your Fitbit, you've got your iThlete. Is it worth it for me to buy this stuff? My argument is always, why would you want to stay in the dark? You know, and so if you're sitting there and you're going, okay, for, first of all, you know, being a member of a gym isn't cheap. You know, um, I, let's say that on average people are paying $50 a month at, at a CrossFit gym. They might be paying as much as $300 a month. For $69.95, you get to know whether or not you're recovered enough. And then we'll talk a little bit about why that's important but the whole point of exercising is not to earn a snickers right that's not the goal the goal is to get better at exercise and the reason why we have phd after phd after phd on this show is to really enlighten people because what i think is happening what i think happens in the scientific community is we're not real good marketers for what we do, right? And I think that what you're doing in terms of like the simplicity of the athlete is so far and away better than the good majority of people are doing. For those that don't have an athlete, it's so simple to use. Um, it really gives you valuable information. And whether, you know, for instance, when I, when I was CrossFitting early on, I saw a lot of gains within the first six months. Ended up gaining, you know, some ungodly amount of muscle because, you know, I was basically unfit previous to that and had never really done any resistance training. 
after six months to a year of three on one off, basically I was working out at 60% all the time. If I knew I was working out at 60% all the time and I could pull back to basically what ultimately I ended up doing once I started using HRV data, I would adapt better. If you were to look at me physically, you would go, oh, wait a second. He has lats now. He has traps now. He has bigger biceps now. All of these things are good for you as it relates to aesthetics, as it relates to getting better at whatever sport you're participating in. And so what what's happening out there is basically everyone just gets this information of you're not working hard enough and you're not doing this and you're not doing that and you're eating too much and 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 all these kinds of things. There is scientific principles behind all this stuff, right? And so, you know, when you look at the the detrimental effect of of something like you know prolonged low carbing when you're doing you know something like a, um, a, you know aerobic conditioning or something of that nature you know HRV will give you that data you know does that mean that you know what worked for you doesn't work for someone else yeah I think that that's part of what we do like Simon doesn't know this but you know we have um, a forum through Eat to Perform that we call the Science Lab. And the whole point when Mike and I started it was to introduce people to this idea that we're all a little different and we have to do some level of trial and error. And so can you talk a little bit about stress and adaptation to stress? Because I think one of the things that happens for a lot of people is they see reds and oranges and they think that they're not supposed to have reds and oranges. Can you make a case for having reds and oranges, allowing for adequate rest so you can adapt to those reds and oranges? Because I'm not saying that reds and oranges is the goal, but green every single time at 102 also isn't the goal. So can you no. talk, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure, uh, and and no doubt Mike can add quite a bit to uh, to this. But um, one of the things I always start off in um, on a, in a talk about heart rate variability and why it's useful to people who train quite a bit is just to remind them of the adaptation, uh, you know, the general adaptation syndrome, which is that in order to force your body to adapt, you need to stress it. Um, and, you know, you, you do need to stress it. Um, and the more you stress it, in some ways, the, the, the better it will become. But the magic really happens during the recovery. Uh, so the magic is that the body rebuilds itself. It, it replenishes energy stores. It repairs microfiber muscle tears. It, it adds mitochondria. It widens blood vessels, all kinds of good things like that. And that happens uh, during the recovery stage and after the recovery stage, then you've got super compensation and super compensation is just, you know, the scientific way of saying, hey, yes, you did get fitter. Um, but the problem happens that if you put too much load and too much stress down um, that after a while, you, you, you know, you're not giving your body the chance to recover and recovery is, you know, is something that, that the perception of recovery has changed massively in the six years I've been doing Eithley. Recovery was almost a dirty word when I started, and now everybody has at least some awareness of the importance of recovery, and that is getting refined all the time now. And, and heart rate variability can enable you to determine you know, what the optimum amount of, of, of stress you can, you can tolerate is, and when you're supercompensated, and supercompensated is the state you want to be in when you train intensively or when you've got a competition. You know, um, that, that's, you know, you are going to deliver a better performance. And some very nice research showing correlations, at least in endurance sports, um, between um, uh, daily HRV compared to your own baseline and relative performance. Some of it's almost too good to be true, in fact. Um, but back a little bit. Uh, to, to, to the science 
I, th I think that smartphones, you know, have opened up massive possibilities. There are a lot of apps out there. Um, we were the first to do heart rate variability. And to my knowledge, iFleet is the only one that's actually been validated and the only one that's used in medical, pharmaceutical, armed forces research, as well as sports science research. And, you know, we, we do pay a lot of attention to the science, but we do pay, you know, just as much attention to making, making the tool easy to use. One thing quickly on stress is that the body actually reacts to stress in an additive manner. So if you think of three sources of stress, you've got physical workouts or your training stress, you've got your um, uh, mental and emotional stress, and then you've got your, your nutritional and chemical stresses, and your body reacts to the sum total of all of those. So if you're not getting, yeah, um, you know, a good, uh, if you're not optimizing your diet, and if you're not dealing well with workplace stresses, relationship stresses, and other sorts of uh, mental and emotional stress, you're not going to be able to perform and recover your best uh, on, on the training side. And I think many professional athletes um, have, have found that out to their, to their cost, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you talk about optimizing your food intake, obviously that's something we cover a lot. Um, the problem that people hear is they think eat less right if I had you know um, less body fat percentage I would be better as an athlete and you know maybe 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 that's not a hundred percent true maybe you know a lot of people think well you know if I eat more fish oil if I eat you know all these different things and what we've been making the case for for three years is that there needs to be, you know, some understanding of protein, some understanding of whole foods, but there needs to be a larger understanding of amount of food that needs to be eaten. As an example, for aerobic-based athletes that are doing long cardio, you know, those guys are notorious under-eaters. So now, okay, if you look at, and, and I'm also a runner, Simon, so, so, you know, this is kind of an interesting conversation, but I've only really taken it up in the last, say, year um, to really kind of refine how I approach fitness. Because one of the things that I don't have is a lot of time. I run a fairly big business, you know, with 60 employees. And so I don't have a lot of time to exercise all the time. So, you know, I basically work out four days a week. I have three one-hour sessions, and then I have one long session that's either three or four hours. Well, mm -hmm. the data that I get from that long session is unbelievable. But the calories that I burn on that day are four to 5,000 calories. And the reason why I'm kind of bringing this up is because the good majority of people that are going to hear this are gym owners. And so if you're a gym owner and you, you own a gym and you're trying to make money, you know, with your <coughs> gym, having your customers working out at a hundred percent is so much better than having them working out at 60% a lot. And like you were saying, when, when I started CrossFit, which was five, six years ago, rest was a bad word. I mean, we just, everyone believed harder, you know, and you had all the beast mode t-shirts and, you know, if you're not strong, you suck and, you know, all this other kind of thing. And then now we're starting to realize, you know, that, I mean, hypertrophy was a bad word for a long time, you know, like in the CrossFit community. Now, You've got hypertrophy, part of every big program. Um, long endurance is being programmed every single time because these are all ways to measure your fitness. But the biggest change I've seen in the last, say, four years um, in CrossFit, but also powerlifting, and I don't want to, you know, like just make this into a CrossFit conversation, but everyone is getting smarter about rest because. Virtually every conversation Mike and I have had, you know, and I think we've had roughly 10 of them. The, the very first one was Alex Vieta. Alex is a, he's, he wrote a book called Hybrid Training. 
and he's a competitive power lifter and he also runs ultra marathons right and so he wrote a book what's the book on it's essentially on rest right and what he's basically describing is how to rest and so what you have is a device that allows people to you know measure their rest and so talk a little bit about some specifics related to super compensation because i think that that's a concept that is sort of lost on people you know it's lost on me occasionally you know because you know i'll just try and well you know i'll run farther this week than i ran last week and talk a little bit why you have to periodize things a little bit more than that and why that's important Mm, sure. Well, one thing, I mean, in the context of, um, you know, the, the eat to perform community is that for gym owners and for trainers, um, heart rate variability opens up some really good possibilities to develop better, more meaningful relationships with the clients. And that will, in my view, uh, lead to you know lower drop-off rates in, in membership and subscriptions. And the reason for that is that uh, one, you're recording heart rate variability, so that opens the door to a meaningful discussion between trainers and and their clients as to you know other things that are going on in their lives, what's working for them, what's not working for them, and then iSleep also provides the um, slider scales for the for the subjective indicators, so you know the the the, the trainer can start to see a more holistic picture of what's going on in that client's life and can take more appropriate steps to program their training for them. So I, I, I hope that everybody who uses Ithley learns something about themselves that they didn't know before. So it's always a journey of self-discovery. Yeah. And, you know, if we look at my six years' worth of data, I've managed to make my HRV go up uh, almost almost continuously, but certainly as a long-term trend, by just learning stuff about what works for me and what doesn't work for me. And that included training. It also included taking a bit more seriously some of the recommendations my wife had made, for instance, about yoga breathing, which I'd really poo-pooed early on. Um, sorry, that's a bit of an English expression there. Um, I didn't take it seriously at all. And uh, she said, you know, try it. It feels good. So I tried it. And, um, yeah, it did feel quite good, but more importantly, it made my HRV go up and, and, <laughs> and stay up like several points. So, you know, that was, uh, that was a pretty worthwhile experiment that, you know, I'm, I might have done it, but I might not have realized the importance of it unless I was measuring heart rate variability. But well, your other so point about, can you hold sorry? on one second? Cause I, I, I want to emphasize what you're just saying. We're in the business to get people results. Okay. Yeah. And. And that's ultimately what you're saying there, right? Is that if people can measure results, they can say, see, that's the problem with the old model. Five years ago, here's your list of naughty and nice foods, right? And, you know, that worked if you were eating like a moron. And once you quit eating like a moron, you know, that stopped working because, to get, you know, everything has its stages, you know, like I said in the beginning, you know, I was working out at 60%, but I was getting results at that point. But after a while of working at, out at 60%, my results started to diminish. And so if you're a gym owner and, you know, we want to know what our 5K time is, and we want to know how much we're lifting and we want to know all this and that. But we're, here's your list of foods, eat chicken and kale, and let us know how that's working for you. Well, how's that mm. going to make you better at the gym? How's less understanding? And so what I think you're really saying, and we're, you know, we don't need people to go out and buy an Ithley, right? That's not, I don't think that's Simon's argument. That's not my argument, okay? But what we are saying is, is that if you're not teaching people that rest is important, you're really missing the boat. And not only are you missing the boat, people are going to get sick, they're going to get hurt, and they're going to join another gym. And so if we get smarter about the the biggest mistake I think that we're making, once again, it kind of comes down to marketing, but we have to sell people on inconvenience a little bit, right? What they When I walked into my CrossFit gym, 
basically I looked at it and went, that's much harder than what I'm doing. That's obviously the secret. Okay. Six months in, I was able to be fairly proficient at what everybody was doing, but the results started to diminish. And so the point being is that what gets Simon results right now isn't going to get Simon results five years from now. So having data to measure that, you know, is fairly important. So I, I interrupted you, Simon, you were making another point. No, no, that, I, th I think you're absolutely right there. Um, having a tool, and, and HRV is an interesting kind of tool because um, I was at um, Biohacker Summit in Helsinki recently, which was a, um, in Finland, which is a, a, a collection of about 500 very switched on people, scientists, coaches, lifestyle gurus, venture capitalists, all kinds of, you know, all kinds of people who are interested in health, fitness, wearables, healthy lifestyles, um, longevity, um, all this good stuff. Um, and, you know, the work points there made about the high abandon rate of a Fitbit. And I was on a panel and we were asked to discuss this. And, and I, you know, I made the comment, I said, well, if a Fitbit's in the sock drawer, that, that could be, I mean, one explanation could be that people have learned what they can learn from that device and then, you know, they're not using it anymore, but it still might have been valuable to them. What I find particularly intriguing about um, heart rate variability is that it treads this fine line between mostly confirming what you think subjectively and then about one or two days a week, it'll deliver you some insightful information, which will be in some respect counterintuitive. And that's such an important line to walk with, with people adopting wearable and fitness technologies. You know, it's got to deliver added value on an ongoing basis. And heart rate variability is one of the few things that can actually do that. Um, I think good quality sleep analysis can do that as well, actually. Yeah. Um, but there's not so many, so not so many gadgets out there which, you know, uh, carry on. Um, giving us useful information which we can use to constantly improve and refine. And you know, I've been doing I've been doing this daily for six years, and I'm still learning plenty. You know, what should be happening to my HRV is that it should be declining slowly, according to the research, uh, because I'm getting older. But what's actually happening is that um, you know, this is six years worth of data shown on the screen here. And I started at the low 60s on the athlete scale. And I'm now, you know, usually mid to high 70s. You know, I'm not a super athlete, but I'm trying to make the most of my abilities. But, you know, that line should be running the other way, according to the research. But um, how, you know, I'm, I'm managing to keep it going up. How old are you, Simon? Ah, I'm going to be 52 next birthday. <laughs> okay, so so we're fairly close in age. I'm 47. Um, can we talk a little bit about, because uh, we, we've got about 20 minutes here left. Can we talk a little bit about resting heart rate? I, I just want to tell you a little secret. I have the uh, HRV All-Star that sleeps in the bed with me. Um, she She routinely is right around 100, potentially 100 yeah. more, okay? Wow. Um, on, like, BMI scales and things of like this, my wife would not be, you know, um, measure well in those scenarios. But when she does virtually anything uh, related to health, she tests off the charts. She also carries her weight around her hips. And so that's been known to be you know, positive. Uh, she stays active. You know, she's a CrossFitter. We do, you know, some long endurance type hiking. I can't convince her to run with me, but, but in general, you know, she's a, a fairly healthy. And if you look at it, it, it's sort of this interesting way, I think heart rate variability is of whether or not you're an athlete. And if you view everybody as an athlete, on the spectrum of athleticism, the point isn't to be over a hundred, right? The point is just to be whatever you are and continuously work to get better. My father was here over the weekend 
and I was explaining to him his HRV was 78. And so for me to say to him, you know, the guy that runs the company, you know, is 75. Like, don't give up. I think a lot of people, you know, think that one, I mean, my dad's a fairly active guy for a 64 year old guy. You know, he's mm -hmm. always been somewhat active. But I think for if you're relatively inactive and you know that, you know, activity needs to be a little bit more of a priority in your life, just a little bit of something is more important. And so that sort of brings me to the last two things that I think we need to talk about. First of all, resting heart rate. Now, I'm going to hone in on this a little bit because, one, I think that cardio has a bad rap. And I think that low-intensity cardio in particular has a bad rap. And in my opinion, not only... So when Alex was talking, Simon, what, what he basically described is sort of the way that I work out. On Tuesdays, I, I go heavy, and then I have a finisher of about four to six minutes at high intensity. And then I, you know, in between that, I do some level of wads, some level of hypertrophy work. And then Friday, Saturday, I do a long run or a long weighted hike or something of that nature. The thing that's nice about the two is they work different energy systems. So for instance, on Tuesday, I'm working, you know, mostly high twitch, um, oxidative on the... Uh, I might have had that wrong, so you guys, you guys, correct me if I'm wrong. But, but in general, um, on my long day, I'm working, you know, just kind of the loose fibers, you know, trying to get oxygen in and out of my system, and it allows two completely separate energy systems to be worked, and essentially allows for rest, right? If you are doing a 15 to 20 minute high intensity wad all the time, your body basically just adapts to that. That's why at six months to a year, sometimes people struggle to continue to see results. So they have to change their approach. And gym owners need to be able to know when they need to change their approach and how they can do that, right? And so, Talk to me a little bit about why heart, <coughs> why um, resting heart rate is fairly important, and the relationship probably to sleep that that kind of comes into the the scenario. Or we can cover both those separately. Hmm, sure. Well, um, so resting heart rate um, is. Yeah, I, I, you know, in the in the primary care uh, community is is one of the best predictors of how long you're going to live. You know, I mean, right. resting heart rate is an incredibly important, simple metric, you know. Um, and you can also, not that many people know this, but you can do a kind of um, uh, back of the hand VO2 max calculation if you know your resting heart rate and your maximum heart rate. You just divide your... Uh, maximum heart rate by your resting heart rate and multiply by 15 and you'll get close to you'll get some sort of prediction for your vo2 max and what happens when you train aerobically is that your resting heart rate decreases and that is primarily due to um, expansion of blood plasma uh, volume and expansion of the heart uh, chambers themselves so your system becomes more efficient you get more more work done for every beat that the, that the heart is doing um, your point about doing the same workouts every day, um, you know, there's, I'm sure there's, there's an awful lot to be said about that. Um, but one thing is that if you're measuring heart rate variability, then if you do the same, the same workout, uh, five days a week and your body adapts itself to that workout, the peaks and troughs that you see in your HRV will get smaller and smaller, right? And that's something that in a scientific community we call the coefficient of variation. So that's going to decrease over time. Um, and that's going to show that you, you have well adapted to that training program. So that is then the time to shake things up. And shaking things up might be might mean doing higher intensity on one day and then followed really by aerobic work the next day and the aerobic work actually helps to accelerate your recovery 
uh, most of the time. So you're then ready for the for the next serious workout the following day. And this th this stuff can work very sympathetically with your body. So you know if you do a, if you do a really hard set of intervals, the next day you should feel tired. You shouldn't feel like doing another set of really hard intervals. Um, and and I would advocate that you know um, so. Uh, aerobic recovery work uh, and, and talking get back to heart rates that aerobic recovery work should probably be in zone one or if you're not that tired then zone two and zone two is up to a pretty important threshold in physiology the first lactate or the first ventilatory threshold and basically the chemistry of what goes on during exercise is significantly different below that um, first threshold than it is above that where you start to produce significant quantities of, of, of lactic acid and um, oxidative stress as well. Um, can I just, Mike, you, can I think I just, you should come in at this point. Yeah, because Mike was at, about, you know, how some of these periodization patterns you, you think should work with HLB. Yeah, Mike, can you unmute yourself because I, I gave incorrect data and so i want to make sure that 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 gets corrected yeah so <clears throat> the long work is actually much more oxidative the short high intensity stuff is actually a different fuel system so it's glycolysis that's primarily using uh carbohydrates um, and i agree with what simon said and kind of what when you're talking about too paul is that so what i do now is i i in essence just have sort of three categories of stuff that i do for my own training um, so I'll say, okay, so kind of heavier, strengthy type work, some lighter hypertrophy work, 12 to 15 rep range, and then sort of a recovery aerobic type session. And so what I do then is if my goal is more strength, my goal is to try to get as many strength sessions in a week as I can get, assuming that my HRV is still good, assuming that I'm recovering from them. So if I did, I'd say a heavy strength session on Monday, my HRV drops a little bit, I can decide, okay, did it drop enough that I'm just gonna do a light aerobic day? Or was it kind of moderate, so I'll do some you know, hypertrophy stuff. So let's say Tuesday I do some hypertrophy stuff. Usually Wednesday it'll kind of come back up a little bit or at least be neutral. So I found that just by binning them into those three areas, I can kind of adjust and go from there. Um, so currently my goal is actually a little bit more to increase my aerobic ability. So now I'm sort of prioritizing less strength stuff, more aerobic development, which is kind of what Simon was saying, that if you push your heart rate up, at some point you kind of cross this area where you start producing more lactate. So if everyone's done like a leg extensions, right? So you're doing leg extensions, you're going away, and all of a sudden you feel that sort of burning sensation. Well, that's uh, lactate is being formed, and then also hydrogen ions, so literally an acid. And that's why you feel a burning sensation. So that actually changes the physiology. So that's an anaerobic, so not using oxygen. And so, like, if I take a sidestep real quick, so some of the CrossFit stuff early on I saw was really, really heavy lactate stuff. You know, go really hard for 60 to 90 seconds, rest, usually incomplete rest, and then go again. And that really seems to be pretty taxing for most people. Um, so with the aerobic sort of recovery day, you're trying to stay below that threshold of lactate. So you're staying here mostly using oxygen, mostly using fat, um, and that just doesn't appear to be as taxing. And also, like Simon was saying, you get the nice positive adaptations with that. So I find just by kind of alternating those three, again, depending upon what your goal is. So now I do some strength stuff, but not as much. I prioritize a little bit more higher level aerobic, some hypertrophy. And then my goal is over time, I want to see my HRV kind of increase and then resting heart rate drop a little bit. Um, so that's building, in my case, more capacity in the system. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you to mute yourself again because we get the feedback. But one of the things Simon mentioned earlier was yoga and using yoga because, you know, whenever we have in these discussions, it always goes to, you know, lift heavier, lift stronger, run farther, you know, all this other type of stuff. Yoga provides you, you know, more conscious ability of breathing, 
Uh, it's a real, you know, I haven't done HRV last year. I started to take up yoga. I'm a horribly inflexible person, which is one of the reasons why I need yoga, right? And so uh, I'll actually start yoga up here again. I typically do it when it's cold because it's hot yoga. And so it's nice to be able to go to some place that's fairly warm. So it's going to be interesting testing my, my HRV, but, but I've, I have a routine where I am fairly recovered. One of the things I will say related to, to Mike is if you're a competitive CrossFitter, what, what competitive CrossFitters are finding out that they didn't know four to five years ago was that having long endurance in the mix allows their energy systems to rest and allows them to continue uh, progressing as an athlete because you 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 know you can only sit, lift so many weights you can only do this or that right the the ability to take a number of hours and then kind of use that to get better as an athlete is is super important and that's what I see a lot of people moving towards uh, the last thing we, we only have six minutes and unfortunately uh, we've got to stick to this and I and, and the bad part is I think this is probably the most important part as it relates to heart rate variability, and that's sleep and stress. And so we probably can't really get super into the stress part of things because that's obviously, you know, we can certainly have you on again, Simon. But, but talk to me a little bit about being a, more conscious of sleep and, and what you've seen with your data and how that affects heart rate variability. Mm, sure. Um, and for a long time, personally, I was just monitoring my sleep quality uh, subjectively. So I could, you know, we're, we're roughly aware of how many times, you know, you get up during the night, you've been restless, you have bad dreams, uh, you know, you went to bed too late, all the usual kind of stuff. And you can give yourself a subjective score on uh, on uh, one of the iSleep sliders or any other sort of subjective uh, sleep recording scale. But in the past uh, couple of months, uh, I've been using a Bedit um, sleep sensor, and I really like that. I think that's it's uh, so long as you are sleeping mostly at home, not traveling that much. It's a, it's a very convenient product to use. Uh, it basically has a motion sensing strip that goes uh, on top of the mattress under the top sheet. And it senses basically, it, it's pretty clever because not only does it sense, you know, crude motion of you moving your body around and rolling and, and all the other things. Um, but it, it, it's, uh, it's got a principle called ballistocardiography. So it's able to measure your heart rate during the night continuously, and it's able to measure your breathing rate as well. Um, and it, it, it's even clever enough to use the microphone in your phone to pick up snoring. So basically in the morning, you get a composite sleep score which again is, is one of these interesting things that are, mostly it confirms what you think, but on a couple of days a week, it'll give you, you know, it'll give you some data back, which is really useful, you know, and, and for me, um, you know, I've been working quite long days pretty intensively recently. And what that has actually led to is impaired sleep quality in the first two to three hours of, of sleep at night which wasn't, you know, I don't think I would have known that if I hadn't been using this tool. Um, because I guess, you know, when you get up in the morning, your subjective impression probably depends largely on the past, the last couple of hours of sleep, um, you know, rather than what happened when you went to bed. And I'm not aware of having light sleep when I go to bed, but apparently, you know, that that's what is happening because I've got a lot on my mind and it's taken me a while to, uh, you know, a while to switch off. So what I've started doing more is more sort of yoga breathing exercises. And I, I did a little app with a friend a couple of years ago called BreatheSync, um, which can be used to, um, you know, help you practice diaphragmatic breathing. And it, it itself uses heart rate variability and gives you, a, um, it gives you feedback on, on how effective your, your yoga type diaphragmatic breathing is being. And it finds your sort of resonant frequency for optimum breathing rate. Um, so that's one thing I've learned about sleep. And another thing is, um, yeah, I don't know how many you know times we've had comments from iSleep users saying, you know, that extra glass of wine or that 
you know, that that extra hour of TV at bedtime was, you know, wasn't a good idea. My, my HRV, you know, is, is not showing the level of recovery I would like. We do need to be really careful about, you know, sleep hygiene before you go to bed. So, you know, there's, there's some principles which are, you know, very well known, I'm sure. One is to avoid blue light close to bedtime, uh, you know, have a cool environment. Um, also, I, I learned something on a, on, a, on a podcast interview with a guy who advises Team Sky on their, on their sleeping habits. And he said um, that we don't actually need a big pillow. I'd always slept with two pillows. And he said, no, your body, you know, it's not not designed to need two fat pillows under your head something very thin or even no pillow at all um is is good and i i quite often woke up with just that lingering little bit of a headache and since i've used one very very thin pillow i haven't i haven't had that at all but and and you know my hrv has correlated quite well with the with the sleep score as well i mean sleep sleep is king right for recovery i mean good quality sleep first four hours of sleep are super important as well because you've got your human growth hormone and testosterone you know doing good stuff during those first four hours so yeah i mean you know, you know monitoring and paying attention to this stuff is just you know it just leads to a better quality of life and you know at the biohacker summit somebody summed it up really well and said we're all here to to be the best possible versions of ourselves every day and you know i, I really subscribe to that well let, let's we'll end on that note i i think that what you're saying is really important the app that you're you're using is called Bedit. Uh, yeah, for the sleep monitoring, yeah. So that's B-E-D-I-T? B-E-D-D-I-T. Okay. And so I think that, uh, you know, what you're saying is is similar to my experience um, as I've uh, moved from, you know, one hour to one and a half hours to now three and four hours as it relates to my long endurance day. And, you know, it took me, like I said, a year to work up to that ability but as I've introduced that stress, you know, my sleep is less, you know, on a lot of those days. And oftentimes I'll look at my HRV and my HRV is fine that day. But then, you know, I have more stress throughout the day. And then the next day, my HRV is a lot lower. And so I think that what, what you're saying is really important because most people have had their focus on a lot of things that don't mean a whole lot as it relates to health, right? What What's your weight? Is it lower? No, it's not lower. Then I'm not successful. No, mm-hmm. if we can measure data in a broad type of way and, and teach clients, you know, that that's important, then we give them a more holistic approach because what, what we often hear with, with Eat to Perform is that I don't understand why I was chasing my tail all those years. You know, I don't understand. I mean, yeah, I wanted to look better naked, but it became this obsession. And now 30, 40 years later, um, I don't know how I got here, you know. And so introducing me to more data and more variables of what a true healthy life looks like is actually mentally stimulating for people. Yeah, that one day that you you get a good reading but you feel horrible, you know, that will throw you off, but you can't let that bother you. It really needs it's just a piece of data. You're trying to solve the puzzle ultimately. What people want is a linear line you know, well, that's redundant, but um, they want a line that's straight to, you know, abs, you know, or a thousand pound squat or whatever it is their goals are. And that's not how this works. You know, if you look at Simon's, you know, chart from the last six years, you know, he gradually got better as an athlete. And one of the things that I talk about a lot, and I'm sure you would probably agree with Simon, is after a while, you know, the journey is the reward and, mm. and, and finding out more information about yourself is a more healthy approach. And, and everybody that says to me, well, I don't have the time to learn all this information. And it's, you know, 
the I have all the think of all the things that you waste your time on. You know, this is one minute a day. You know, I mean, you don't have one minute a day to see whether or not you should go to the gym or not. My wife that I was talking about has 102 HRV, which is, you know, as Simon will attest, that's very high. She works out three times a week. You know, mm -hmm. so what does that what does that mean? Well, you know, would she like to work out more? Sure, she would. But she's recovered every single time that she works out. So she gets more out of her workouts. People at the gym are talking about it all the time. Like, oh, my goodness, your your strength is so much better than, you know, and, and they want to know what program she's on. She's on the rest program. You know, they they, they everybody wants to everybody wants you know, the work harder thing to be the secret, but it really isn't. Rest is really super important. Um, so I, I, I kind of had a little diatribe at the end. Anything you want to leave on there, Simon? Uh, no, but there's, there's perhaps just this one thing that that last part of your, um, you know, last part of your commentary reminds me of Paul there. And I can't remember who said this, maybe one of you two knows it, but, um, uh, you can choose to make time to be healthy now, or you can be forced to make time to be sick later. Yeah, I think I think I think when we're talking about recovery, we're really talking about sickness. We're talking about mortality. We're talking about a lot of big principles that have nothing to do with abs. But if you're more recovered, if you can exercise better, those things are always favorable in terms of body composition. And that doesn't get talked about enough. And so I'm, I'm glad that we have the, the venue to do that. And I appreciate you being here, Simon. And we will be in touch because, like I said, I could not endorse your product more. I just think it's a game changer for a lot of people. It's a relatively inexpensive price point for the um, amount of data that you get. And it really is the future, you know, the it, it, the future is here. You know, we, we wanted our smartphones to give us this kind of data. And so this is um, the payoff for all that. So I appreciate you being here, Simon. And we're just going to shut this down. And I, I appreciate everybody listening. Talk to you later. Yes. Thank you. See you.